Hello, you're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan, and I'm here as always with David Scott. Paul, it is great to be back. Uh, our guest on the show this week, um, we had on the show a couple of weeks ago, we had uh, uh, Jonathan Tepper to talk about the myth of capitalism, which is his new book. We've got a great response to that show. Um, now, as a follow-up, we've got uh, with us on the show today uh, um, to continue and I think take a bit more of an optim optimistic view on how well capitalism is functioning. We've got uh, a senior researcher from, policy researcher from the Centre for Independent Studies here in Sydney. It's Eugenie Joseph. Eugenie, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, it's a great paper you've written. It uh, talks about um, how successful capitalism has been and a reminder that people need to get behind it, uh, get behind the system uh, uh, and have a better understanding of it so that we can defend it. Um, but uh, just quickly, and we are going to publish, I know some people will be wondering about this, we are going to publish um, the proceedings from our live show the other night, Dave. Uh, it was a good evening, wasn't it? It was a good evening. Hopefully everyone who was uh, in attendance had a good time. I think uh, there was more than a few uh, beverages consumed over the night, so uh, everyone looked like they are having a fun time from what I could see from the other stage. Yeah, it certainly was. And um, I, I'll, if, you, if you look up my Twitter, I'll put on this Spotify, Spotify uh, playlist that we uh, put together with all of the uh, panellists, uh, which turned out to be uh, a really interesting uh, list of music, but the show itself uh, uh, was was great. Um, so we are going to package it up. It just takes a bit of time to do all the production on it, um, but that should be available probably next week. Um, I think a couple of highlights for me out of the evening. Uh, one was uh, the reaction when Stephen Kukulis said it was a great time to buy a house. Um, uh, Joe Masters uh, landed a brilliant point, and there was a kind of a little sort of intake of breath uh, around the room when she pointed out that the time to save for a deposit if you're on an average income in Sydney has come down 30%. But it still takes nine years. Yeah, so I had to go and pull the other uh, cook up for his uh, housing affordability, uh, you know, mantra about uh, you know the fact that how much it costs to go and uh, service a mortgage is very different to actually going and entering the property market and saving for a deposit, particularly in this era where we've got um, tighter lending standards and uh, and high LVR lending is off the cards. So um, I'm glad that that uh, that point was reinforced. Well, this isn't this the issue that you've got. You know, it might be a little bit cheaper to buy a house, but can you get a loan? Um, is a is a big question now. That is a big question, isn't it? And I think a lot of people out there at the moment who are either are looking to enter the property market or who have previously gone and got a loan are quickly learning out that what it was like back in the day is not what it's like today. It's a fine tooth comb over every single expense, as uh, I think uh, Pete Wodgett was uh, pointing out. I uh, didn't, didn't bring up the example, but yeah, there was one with a, a pet food uh, that was purchased by a certain person and a loan was uh, questioned by, and uh, oh, you just said you didn't have a pet. And then uh, apparently this was a gift, but it was still stopped and it held up the loan in the process. So that just tells you how uh, how tight things are at the moment. Yeah, line by line uh, analysis um, of credit card statements uh, certainly is a different world. Uh, one of the other interesting things I thought, Bill Evans, um, the chief economist at Westpac, uh, uh, came on for the last panel as well. And one of the things, uh, it was a very funny exchange between himself and Stephen Kukulis because uh, it was nine o'clock in the evening and uh, there was a question about whether Bill should be um, back at home watching uh, Midsummer Murders. But he corrected, he corrected Stephen and said, actually, no, it's the Antiques Roadshow. Um, <laughs> but Bill called out that uh, he... he 
he called out that the thing he's he's looking towards now is the Fed, right? So, and it's a good, always a good reminder. I think people at the very, you know, the, these um, very senior analysts, etc., have a great way of being able to simplify things. And uh, really, it certainly is one of the things we talk about at Business Insider that look, the Fed is really still driving uh, the bus here. Um, the world central bank. That's right. And uh, next year is going to be interesting. How many rates? Uh, rate hikes they're going to put in is a really open question, right? Definitely is. There seems to be a bit of speculation as to whether we'll really go and see like uh, another three increases like their median forecast is for 2019. Uh, I suspect that what was done last night, uh, we're recording on Thursday afternoon, we had uh, had Powell speaking uh, overnight uh, on Wednesday and uh, talking about how now that uh, the Fed funds rate was uh, only just a little bit below neutral uh, and people picked up very quickly that he said only last month that there was a long way from being neutral. Uh, I suspect that it was a bit of semantics because uh, Powell was talking about the range of estimates for uh, for the neutral funds rate. I think back in October, he was actually asked about his personal opinion as what the neutral level was. Uh, I suspect that when we see the uh, the figures come out, the new uh, dot plots for uh, year-end forecasts, uh, I would be surprised if there's still not another three median uh, forecast priced in for uh, 2019. So we'll see what happens when that occurs. Uh, there might be a slight downgrade, you don't know, but uh, I certainly don't think that the Fed is at this very moment in time with unemployment sitting well below 4%, payroll still running well over 200,000 per, per month. Uh, there's really sort of justification to go and say that we're close to neutral because all the signs are that it's going further away from, uh, from, uh, from 4% that unemployment rate. So it, it clearly isn't near neutral at the moment. Yeah, it's um, it's going to be an interesting year ahead. And don't forget, obviously, David's coverage uh, and the rest of our um, Business Insider team globally following this uh, this story um, over the coming months. Um, right now, um, capitalism is under attack. Um, Eugenie, you've written this excellent paper, right, uh, about the, the the importance of of defending uh, uh, capitalism. Um, its title uh, is. Uh, very simply why we should defend capitalism. So congratulations. It's a good, uh, it's, a, it's a very interesting read. Um, I'm going to start off um, by quoting some of your own work at you, um, if, you'll, if you'll bear with me, uh, because um, I do think it's very, it's succinct, um, but uh, it's also, um, I think, provocative and, 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 uh, and worth a bit of thought. So here we go. Here's a little excerpt from the start of it. So in many capitalist uh, economies, um, millennials and especially millennials and young people have lost sight of the fundamental benefits of, of capitalism and they simply associate it with excessive consumption. You write, in effect, capitalism is having an identity crisis. Prominent economists such as Joseph Stiglitz have become vocal critics, decrying the capitalist system as fundamentally flawed. Uh, American economist Jeffrey Sachs has declared capitalism to be unsustainable through its destruction of the natural environment. Pope Francis has labeled capitalism the new tyranny and condemned the absolute autonomy of markets. Even the elected leaders of prosperous countries with market economies are quick to join the anti-capitalism bandwagon. New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern has proclaimed capitalism a blatant failure, while Theresa May has spoken of unethical companies as the unacceptable face of capitalism. Even United States President Donald Trump 
is no fan of free trade, the vehicle for successful capitalism, which he blames for destroying local jobs and industries. I have one more paragraph. Disturbingly, these messages appear to be resonating with Australian millennials, the majority of whom have a favorable view of socialism, according to recent polling by the Center for Independent Studies. Yet, this is not surprising in some respects. How can millennials defend our economic system when they do not understand it? Well done. Um, Thank you. Take it up from there. Um, talk about this poll. Um, maybe we start there. Sure. So this, the Centre for Independent Studies, the organisation I work for, undertook some polling quite recently on millennials' attitudes towards um, socialism and capitalism. And surprisingly, it found that 58% of millennials uh, have a favourable view of of socialism and a similar percentage believe capitalism has failed and that the government should have a bigger role in managing the economy. So they were the findings of the poll. And in some ways that is very surprising, but in other ways, perhaps not so much because Australia has gone through 27 years of continued economic growth. So many millennials, uh, myself included, don't even remember the last recession we've had. Um, so in some ways, that's not surprising. But there are some other issues at play. And I do think one of them is that millennials tend to feel very strongly about the natural environment. But secondly, I think there is low awareness here in Australia just about how dramatic the impact of capitalism is currently in the developing world in lifting millions of people out of extreme poverty. I think there's quite low awareness of that fact here in Australia. So that that was really the impetus for my paper. It's, it's to really present uh, the positive case for capitalism based on the actual data, based on the actual evidence of what is happening, not just in Australia, but in the developing world. And in the aggregates are very solidly clear um, that capitalism has overall been a force for for good. Um, so when we talk about let's let's I mean start yeah. start going through the metrics, mm, mm. Uh, lifting uh, millions, hundreds of uh, millions of people out of absolute poverty. Um, That's uh, right. Talk about. Uh, education levels, you mm -hmm. talk about infant mortality, That's you talk right. about life expectancy, you talk about average incomes uh, per capita across mm -hmm. the world. It is a very, very long list mm. of things that have been in, of enormous benefit, changing people's lives in meaningful ways um, for decades now. That's correct. Well, um, the last 200 years, pretty much since the, the Industrial Revolution in, in, in Great Britain, um, we've, we've seen that happen. So, so the statistics are so stark. They're so dramatic. Um, in the last 200 years, the, um, the extreme poverty rate has fallen from 94% of the whole global population to less than 10% today. In fact, it's probably closer to 8%, although we're waiting on official figures, updated figures from the United Nations. Um, but, but the progress in the last uh, 30 years has even been more dramatic. I mean, since 1990, the number of people who have escaped extreme poverty um, is more than a billion people. Now, what makes this even more remarkable, in, in my opinion, is that this 
dramatic decline in global poverty has coincided with very rapid population growth around the world. How could that be possible? In the last 200 years, the population has exploded from 1 billion to over 7 billion people. And yet our global uh, extreme poverty rate has fallen. Hunger rates have fallen dramatically, undernourishment rates, food prices have managed to fall, um, managed to fall in the second half of the 20th century, despite rapid population growth. And why is this possible? Put simply, it is because of trade, because of economic markets, because of productivity in, in agriculture. So it's a fascinating uh, area. And I think mm. um, this week when we spoke, we talked about Hans Rosling's book, which I've mentioned, yes. I think, gosh, three or four times on the podcast now. Uh, but I read it this year after Bill Gates recommended it and said that uh, it was uh, the essential guide to thinking clearly about the world. Mm. Uh, and one of the things that Rosling, who died writing the book, um, right. yeah, um, one of the things Rosling points out is the, the like we have this inbuilt, inbuilt tendency um, to see the negatives uh, everywhere we look. It's probably a survival instinct or whatever, right? So be alert for danger, right? So you see negative headlines, etc. And his whole book is about all of this stuff, like why do we feel that the world is bad mm. when the facts, as you've been outlining, and Rosalind goes into all of this stuff in great detail as well, um, you know, infant mortality um, is much better. If you get sick, there is a far greater chance that you are going to be able to survive it, to be around right. your family, etc. Um, you know, so... Um, whether it's medical income, um, education levels, uh, female participation in all sorts of things, slow um, progress, but progress nonetheless, right? Um, and his one of the points that he makes is the way to think about it is the world is bad, sure, but it's getting better. Um, so where, are the, where do you think the other things are that people miss? Uh, what are the other realities of capitalist systems that you think people miss? Because we're going to get onto some of the problems with them. Um, but what, what do you think are some of the other um, stark realities of capitalist systems that um, are of benefit to people? Yes. Well, well, I think along with, with huge gains in, in um, incomes, average incomes around the world, I, I think the other benefit that many of us just take for granted now is the huge gains in our, our quality of life. And by that, I'm not just um, meaning, you know, health, education, life expectancy. By the way, life expectancy, again, it, the, the, the change has been so dramatic for, for millennia. Um, life expectancy around the world pretty much stagnated between 30 and 40 years. That's only changed in substantially in the last 100 years. So now the global life expectancy is has cracked the 70-year mark, which which is remarkable. And by the way, it's um, it's currently 82 years in Australia, so we're doing even better than, than the global average. It's remarkable. It's also costly. Um, it is costly. Here. That's right. And that, that's why we also need capitalism uh, to generate the revenue to, to fund our uh, expensive hospital system. <laughs> Um, but yes, so 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 that's that's one one very stark benefit of of human progress and economic development. But as I mentioned, it's also the quality of life. And what I mean by that is 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 just people's everyday lives have improved immensely. People have, especially here in Australia, we have huge 
amount of choices in our everyday life, choices that even the richest kings in history never had. Um, and and it is something we tend to take for granted. I mean, 90% of us own smartphones now. Um, that was unaffordable for most people 10 years ago. But just think about how much that has transformed our lives. I mean, some might argue smartphone addiction is, <laughs> is a bad thing. But overall, you know, we, we all choose to get our smartphone. And, and obviously, we we extract a lot of utility and a lot of value from that. Um, that's just one example. But but again, in Australia, we, we, we're more educated than ever. 29% um, of us have university degrees compared to only 7% um, just 30 years ago. It's, it's, it's very stark. Um, we're traveling more than ever. Australians undertake more than, undertake millions of trips every year overseas. And the majority of those are for holidays. So that is, that is a very stark um, indicator of, of, of how much our, our quality of life has improved to the extent that we have disposable income to spend on, on non-essential services and et cetera. So, so the question here, right? Mm. Um, I think the obvious one is um, th th if you like take like theoretical capitalism, mm. um, isn't it possible just for governments to do this, to drive it? Like this is the devil's advocate Mm. question, right? Um, why can't governments just drive this? Like we have a more socialist system where the state provides, like generates the revenue, mm. generates the demand, mm. um, you know, um, like you've got fiscal stimulus, right? You just get mm. large amounts of, you know, have high taxes uh, on activity, low levels of competition, you know, this is the devil's advocate question. Why can't why can't we have a socialist utopia? Well, well, the um, the there there are two parts to the answer. I think first, um, firstly, I'll just say there's there's the practical reason, which is that we've we've actually never seen a successful socialist economy. Um, you know, some people claim the Nordic countries are socialist. They're not really. IKEA. <laughs> That's right. Maersk. <laughs> Did you know it's it's actually easier to to start a small business in in Norway and Denmark than it is here in Australia. I mean, they have very business-friendly policies. They have some of the most well-known, successful companies in the world, like Skype and IKEA. They're, they're certainly not a bastion of, um, of, of socialist utopia. Um, so, so and, and then we just need to look at, at the... Um, the obvious examples of, of, of the, sh the failure of socialism. I mean, the current um, unfolding crisis, humanitarian crisis in, in Venezuela, Venezuela is, yeah. is, is, is so tragic. Inflation, I mean, something like a thousand percent. Hyperinflation, exactly. Like, a thousand percent. Try and try a million or more percent. Really? Yeah, that's what I was running at earlier this year. And that's correct, yes. A I, million percent inflation. <laughs> That's, uh, that's, that's the point where you can't even have uh, electronic counters because they, they won't be able to keep up. The batteries will keep running out all the time. So yeah, that's right. Crazy. <laughs> that's right. Um, and they've lost a massive 9% of their, their total population in, in, as refugees um, just in the last few years. So it, it's, very, um, it's very disturbing. But, but it is proof that, um, I, uh, in my opinion, that um, when you try to implement a socialist regime, uh, it's, it's, it's always... Um, inevitable 
abruptly turns into a to a failure. And and um, you know, you might be aware that um, under the former president Hugo Chavez, there was mass nationalisation of industry. So he did have that belief that uh, the government could centrally control everything. They could take ownership of their oil industry, um, their utilities, and and everyone would be better off. And and the opposite happened. It, it's been an absolute disaster. So 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 that is one reason why I, I, I cannot advocate for socialism is just the lack of of evidence that it can ever succeed. But but there's also the theoretical arguments, which is that um, people are individuals, and who knows individuals better than they do. The government certainly doesn't. How does the government know how much you value uh, good A compared to good B? How do they know if you prefer bread to apples? How do they decide how much to grow? The the, the great strength of capitalism is that it, it involves something what's called spontaneous order, where just through markets and the price mechanism, we can work out how much to produce. And we have that... Um, miracle of, of of the economy producing the, the, the amount that, that, that is demanded by the well, consumer. Well, we see this, this almost perfectly in our in <laughs> Australia's biggest export, iron ore, uh, David. So when you have um, you had a story a couple of weeks, was it last week? About profitability of steel mills collapsing? Yes. Yeah, Chinese steel mills were running that. Their profitability uh, you know, margin per ton uh, was uh, was sitting at, uh, at elevated housing. It was like six-year highs. Uh, then all of a sudden, because you had input costs started to go and rise, and then the other uh, final prices for steel were starting to go and fall, then all of a sudden they uh, they weren't making any money. Then all of a sudden, iron ore prices went from being uh, near multi-month or multi-year highs in the terms of uh, high-grade ore to uh, to being absolutely slammed. <laughs> they, are, they are some of the uh, biggest falls, if not the biggest falls, uh, since spot pricing began. So. Uh, it was quite a violent move, and that was a, a market reaction driven by supply and demand. Yeah, and it's interesting. What I find fascinating about this is the way that market works now. Uh, so much of the logistics around it um, has all been automated, and uh, mm. and they're so sophisticated now in terms of output. Um, so they can go, okay, well, prices are at this level. In order to maintain a certain level of margin, this is the rate that we need to control supply by um, so that we can basically nudge the price, um, manage the price to a point where, 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 where it's going to be useful for us. So, so they can. That's um, right. Yeah. So they manage the the flow of output to maximize their price. Yeah. Yeah, which and, is and what do it you almost do in real a, time. Like um, mm. this fascinating stuff that mm. I, that you hear. Like so, they've got mines all over Western Australia, mm. and it's raining in one place, which might disrupt supply out of wherever. But what they do is they'll turn the dial on another mine nice. uh, in another part of the state. Um, and increase its output to make up for the shortfall. Uh, they can do this, you know, guys sitting in a control room in Perth. That's the story of productivity yeah, yeah. and efficiency. That's right. It's the market in action. Yeah, that's right. So, look, there are all sorts of problems. Yes. Um, many, many problems. And I think uh, Tepper, um, when he was on the show, called it like uh, pointed out a lot of them. One of the key things is that like capitalism needs to be about competition, right? Um, for it to be effective. Um, and there are oligopolies and monopolies everywhere you look. And I think particularly in Australia, um, we have, so you think about airlines, uh, which is one of the examples Tepper yep. used. He talked about Australian, sorry, he talks about American airlines having like regional mega hubs, um, like fortress cities, um, so that 
like if you're flying out of Atlanta, for example, um, you're almost locked into flying with Delta, right? Mm. And Delta can manage its price and it basically dictates that mm. market. Even though there's there appears to be a lot of competition in the US airlines, mm. when you get down to the actual, your decisions and your options as a, a consumer, you're actually quite limited. So um, that's the airlines, but like take that to Australia, right? If, you are flying from Sydney to Melbourne. You've really only got a couple of options, right? Um, so, so that's one part of it. Um, let's go down through the list. Supermarkets, right? Classic example. Hmm. Banks. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> right? Uh, and we see what happens if there's if one of the banks decides to move on mortgage rates. Surprise, surprise. Um, within seventy-two hours, the rest of them follow along, right? Um, Typically, um, I think it was a little bit of a difference last time, wasn't there? NAB held out. Yeah, but they had the highest standard variable mortgage rate beforehand, and now everybody's catching up. Um, so, um, but then, like, and I think what's been really interesting, like, so uh, let me take a, another example: craft beer, right? Mm. So there's been this explode, right? So, ten years ago, um, there was like Carlton and VB, right? A couple of huge giant breweries. There's been this explode explosion uh, in types of beer available and this like honestly exhausting thing of like you know when you go to any bar now it's like which of my 17 beers would you like it's like it's confusing can I have one in a glass please um, so um, but there's now you're now getting this consolidation in that market too right so big breweries are mm. buying up these brands mm. uh, and you're getting this consolidation and the argument is that capitalism in the way it's regulated at the moment mm. leads to these mm. oligopolies. Mm. Um, it eventually, like the 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 Davids, Davids become Goliaths. Mm. Um, mm. So Facebook starts off as a, um, a disruptor. Yeah, yeah, as a disruptor, mm. a tiny little company, mm -hmm. and now look at it. Right, it yep. just controls you know half of the media you can see you know um there's a billion people on the platform. And advertising revenue. Mm. Exactly. Mm. Well, Online. you know, it's our mm. it's our our you know, number one competitor, mm. it and Google, right, for advertising dollars. So, um, so I, I, there are all those problems, mm. right? Mm. How do you think about that? Mm -hmm. Sure. So, 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 of course, we want we, we want competition in in economic markets. Um, no one disputes that, and and competition is an important ingredient for for successful capitalism because it's competition that that really drives innovation. It drives improvements in quality of the products and services you're providing, and it also ensures that businesses actually deliver what consumers want. Because otherwise, you're not going to make a profit. Um, if if I if I don't like you know the bread being sold by a bakery, I can go down the road to a different bakery. So. So obviously, so it's it's very obvious why we why why we need capitalism. Australia does have a few problems that that are quite unique to us. We've we've got a relatively small population. Tr historically, we had quite we were quite an isolated economy geographically, and and that has led to some, as you mentioned, some some entrenched oligopolies in yeah. in certain industries. And um, like for example, like mm. like you can see the natural result of so say if you want to have let's, let's take supermarkets mm. right it's twenty twenty five million people in the country right yeah. it's tiny yeah. um, and and to get the economies of scale and the value that a, a very large company uh, can deliver to people um, you know you have to build a 
big company to do that, to realize, to capture that value and create it in your supply chain, in your, like the way you can offer, um, like your purchasing power in the market, all of that kind of stuff. Um, but you, the country at 25 million people, you're only going to be able to sustain one or two of those mm. things. You're not mm. going to have 10 giant supermarket mm. companies. It's not realistic. There's not enough room. Yes, that's correct. Uh, yeah. Um, so, um, so this is one of the issues, isn't it? Like, so you want more competition, but reality ends up biting that a little bit. Absolutely. Look, look. Um, I, I agree. Um, I think there's that tension because um, companies that achieve economies of scale, so so bigger, can can cut their unit unit costs. Um, they tend they can be more efficient, and that can actually help the consumer um, through lower prices. Um, but but at the same time, I, I guess I would take slight issue with assuming that all concentrated markets are automatically uncompetitive because um, a company can be big and there might only be a few players in the market, but but there can still be competition between those few few players. And the evidence in Australia actually suggests that Coles and Woolworths do compete and they compete quite vigorously and aggressively. And Audi, which is really interesting, Audi is quite a small player, but they're actually having a disproportionate competitive impact because what they provide is such a clear, strong substitute to, to Coles and Woolworths. It's so good. I don't it's do so shop good. at Aldi. Um, I've only got a, a small store where near I live in, and uh, to be honest, a lot of the stuff in there is pretty rubbish. But uh, I know from a broader perspective and going to some of the bigger stores, it does go and give you a lot more variety if you're prepared to go and buy in bulk or not go for brand names per se, um, I'm sure it's welcome for a lot of households, you know, with uh, with stretched budgets at the, the moment. Prices, the prices are just awesome. And uh, to me, the quality of produce is excellent. So, and we are probably like, um, so I know some people who still have a problem or are hung up about shopping at Aldi, uh, which I find really, really interesting, um, inexplicable. Um, but then we we do, I think, what a, a lot of um, families do now, mm. which is to split the shop, mm. right? So there's certain products that you get from, uh, so absolutely as a result of Aldi's enter, entry into the market here, um, if you like, they have uh, Coles and Woolworths have lost some market share from the uh, from our <laughs> from the Colgan family uh, 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 spending allocation, and, and not just that, but their broader margins have been uh, squeezed down now, and uh, so that's obviously implied that you no, know, there's going to be you know, price discounts for uh, for consumers and everything else, and it's not just Audi that you know, obviously there's a lot of other players who are starting to eye off the market because even with that margin compression we've seen. Uh, our market's still got a significantly higher level of, uh, of profit margins compared mm. to other yes. uh, other developed markets. So, mm. yes, we're not a huge uh, no, nation. We're 25.1 million odd people, but there's still obviously uh, room for, uh, for competition to go and squeeze in. Calfland is coming. Mm. Um, uh-huh. And um, so Calfland's coming and uh, who's the analyst? Um, Tom Kirath, uh, who to my mind is the best retail industry analyst uh, in the country is at Morgan Stanley um, and he thinks this poses a really big threat to the major listed supermarket companies um, because Aldi is already eating into their margin and market share uh, and Kaufland is going to come along and its business model even if they do like Aldi has done very limited entry uh, at first mm. um, that uh, 
Yes, it'll. Yeah, so, so your point is well made. That yes, the, 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 we it feels like a like an oligopoly, mm. um, and in some ways of slicing it, it is. Mm. But actually, there's fierce competition at the same time. That's so we shouldn't right. lose sight of. I think we have some reason to be optimistic, and and you know, if you look at the household budget, um, households are spending as a proportion of their budget, they are spending less on on groceries than than they were 10, 20 years ago. So so that is um, a positive indication um, that um, there has been some price competition, um, and and you know, not too much inflation in in, in groceries. So. Uh, but but yeah, more, more broadly, I suppose um, going back to the the question of oligopolies in Australia, you know, we uh, you mentioned government play a role here, and it is true where you look at markets that are uh, oligopolistic, um, where there are monopolies, often they're very highly regulated sectors, and no more so than the banking banking sector. It's it's not contrary to popular perception. It's not a bastion of of free market capitalism in in the banking sector. It, it isn't. It they um it is one of the most tightly regulated sectors. You need a fin- financial license to operate. They need to comply with so many laws and rules. They need to comply with APRA's uh, APRA's rules. They need to um, be well funded. Um, all these rules and 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 that will have an impact on on the amount of competition in the market and it makes it more difficult for for new banks to to barriers get set to up entry barriers to entry enormous. exactly are enormous so mm. so we have to remember um that yeah monopolies don't exist because of capitalism often they more often than not they exist because of government regulation which which impose high barriers to entry and really keep out competitors so what can be done to strengthen competition then mm. so so the government um this is where government can play a good role um we we need to to firstly i think look at barriers to entry. I mean, that that always is the best way to, to encourage more competition in the market. Um, so, so there are many ways to do that. I think um, even a good example is the taxi industry. So the taxi industry op- operated as a monopoly for, for decades. I mean, it was it was a government-licensed monopoly where you would pay over your $100,000 and get a taxi license and that would guarantee you a steady income and, and, you, and, and it was very high barriers to entry because you needed to afford to pay for the license. It was rubbish service as well. Do you That's remember right. trying to get a and cab expensive. at like 9 o'clock at night uh, and the driver would pull up and say, where are you going, mate? And you'd be like... I'm going to wherever, you know, down the street. Nah, sorry, drives off down the road like... I don't really not remember. I, I, I know it's still happening today. After I was at the uh, Rugby League Grand Final <laughs> earlier this year, and we had three cabs going, stop and going, so like, you know, where, where are you going after the game finished? And we said, oh, going back to Surrey Hills. And they're going, oh, they'll, they'll make their own uh, own fees up. Oh, no, it'll be $200. And it was like, you're absolutely kidding, mate. So uh, we took their, uh, their, their number plates down and sent it to the taxi company and said, yeah, this is what your, uh, your folks are doing. So, yeah. so then even with the arrival of Uber and Lyft and all these other places, there's still grounds for more competition in that industry, I suspect. That's good. Uh, uh, I agree with that. Yeah, yeah. And this is one of the things we are going to get onto this, which is, you know, the feedback mechanisms mm. in in open societies where you can like, so which ultimately is expressed through, um, the, you know, the, through the ballot box um, and the policies that we decide mm. to support. But mm. there's also this thing of 
particularly these days, you can tell people what you think mm. uh, and you can have a view on things and that can matter. So we're going to get on to the whole freedom issue and why that's important to be associated with um, with capitalism, that it's not just a um, about building businesses, but it's also about maintaining people's individual choices and liberty, etc. Okay, we're going to take a short break and uh, we'll be back and we'll get back on to um, uh, this fascinating uh, discussion uh, about uh, based on uh, Eugenie's new research paper from the Centre for Independent Studies on Defending Capitalism. You're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan here, as always, with David Scott. And our guest is Eugenie Joseph, a researcher with the Centre for Independent Studies. Now, Eugenie, you talk about governments being needing to be pro-markets rather than pro-business. Uh, and I think that was, I thought that was an interesting and uh, well-put uh, uh, argument. Um, maybe you can elaborate on it a little bit. Sure. Yeah, so, so by that, I mean, when, when I say governments should be pro-markets, not pro-business. I mean, I'm really referring to, to concerns about uh, what, what is commonly known as, as crony capitalism or corporatism or even corporate welfare, where governments make the decision to, to protect a particular business in the market or they erect barriers to entry which protect that business from, from new competition um, or they give out subsidies to that business, which, which happens in a lot of industries, even here in Australia. But, but, the, but what if we really want competition in in our economy, we, um, that is not the best way to achieve it. Um, if you have governments um, give, giving favourable treatment to certain businesses, and and there are so many examples of that um, in Australia's history, unfortunately. I mean, a classic example is is the years of industry support that we gave to the car manufacturing industry. We gave car manufacturers um, a total of. $30 billion in, in subsidies between the between the 1990s and as late as 2012. Now, what did that actually do in the end? In the end, all car manufacturers actually withdrew from Australia. So, so it slowed down that, that structural adjustment in, in the car industry, but it didn't stop it. The, 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 the case for that, though, is mm. that like towns, entire communities get detonated by a, a company's decision to remove itself from a particular right. Now, you're talking about, it's one thing to have a company um, disintegrate, but you're talking about potentially a, a community disintegrating, which is why. Um, so, and, and isn't there a place for like government to step in with those kind of things? Look, I am not a fan of subsidies, right? <laughs> Please don't misread me. Um, but but isn't there a, like a, a function there that that like that is the concern, right? It's to stop the social problems, the unemployment, the um, the and all the problems that come with that, right? So with people having nothing to do, um, you know, you talk about like if there's a if there's a town with a lot of people in it and no jobs, you get all sorts of social problems as a result of that, right? So long-term unemployment particularly, right? So skills, deficiencies, um, you know, and we are seeing some pretty interesting trends in Australia in terms of long-term unemployment. But, oh, there's, not, there's undoubtedly some structural unemployment, but it's interesting that we, are, we talk about the, uh, the automotive industry, the manufacturing industry. And so you, you're talking about you know, primarily uh, Adelaide and you're talking about uh, you know, Geelong. Geelong. Now, you look at what's going on in Geelong right now. Geelong's 
humming. The economy is doing mm. quite well there at the moment. I don't think Adelaide's quite as strong as what, uh, what, what Geelong would be, but they're also doing okay at the moment. Unemployment is trending lower there as well. So I think that you know, whilst there is going to be pockets of structural unemployment that's going to be caused by these shutdowns, uh, certainly there hasn't been, even with the closure, and I know that everyone was talking about how the manufacturing sector was going to be decimated and, and dead and buried in this country when those things shut down. But then you look at the moment, what's going on with uh, you know, the PMI reports that come out, so measuring activity levels across you know, the various sectors. And the, by far the strongest performing sector at the moment is the manufacturing sector in the country. So I just find it interesting that the whole idea of like, you no, know, that whilst the, the, the argument for like keeping those uh, those companies in place to go and employ people and everything else is no I can see there's grounds for that the reality that we've seen since then is that you know whilst there has been for some individuals you know some disruption and, and some you know, bad times for broadly it seems to have coped fairly well these are these two areas so the argument that the government should be pro-market rather than pro-business um, the the thing that I think makes people a bit uncomfortable with that is that well like if you just let the market rip you kind of know what's going to happen, right? Um, that it's not going to, people feel like it's not going to be great for them. So how do you think about like government striking that balance between being pro-markets or, or, um, versus pro-business? Mm, absolutely. Well, well, the central tenant of, of, of being pro-market is, 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 is to ensure there's a level playing field for, for businesses that, that want to trade in a market, enter a market. Um, and, and it is a balance. You're right. I mean, um, but, but that, that is the essence of capitalism. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Joseph Schumpeter's um, theory about creative destruction, and, and that is the, the history of capitalism. It's unfortunately, it's not always a pretty process. It, it leads to the rise and fall of industries. Um, but in the long term, it should lead to, to, to better products, better services. And, and that's certainly what, what we've seen, seen today. Um, but but I think going back to to the the question about uh, industry uh, industry assistance propping up dying industries because we're worried about the social cost of unemployment, you know that that's a really good point. I mean we you know that that's what motivated I think Donald Trump in some ways to to slap tariffs on aluminium and and steel steel imports um he 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 was concerned about these communities that rely on manufacturing jobs um it's it was a very populist decision um so 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 that's a very valid point we we don't want to 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 create uh Create uh, communities that are that are trapped in intergenerational cycles of unemployment because all the jobs have dried up, and and that but that is where government the role of government should be to to aid the transition. So it should be the focus should be on structural adjustment of of these local communities rather than protecting the industries that that operate in those communities. And and I know that that's easier said than done. But but studies have been done into the effects of of, of, of factories shutting down, and what what the studies have shown are actually fairly positive. That that younger, particularly younger people who are, who who are employed in these manufacturing jobs, they most of them do find employment very soon after. The the real problem is is the older age cohort. So people who have spent their whole working lives um, working in manufacturing. Um, 
And and that's where the long-term unemployment problem can happen. But that's actually quite a small proportion. But there I would say, of course, the government and has a duty to to, to assist those communities. I would agree there. Um, okay. I want to tackle one thing that kind of spins out a little bit um, uh, from uh, something that happened during the Royal Commission this week. Mm. Um and it's related to a really interesting talking point that there has been in corporate circles this year. Um, okay, so Ken Henry was in the witness box um, at the World Commission, uh, who's the NAB chairman um, and the former federal treasury secretary. And he was argue- arguing that from a theoretical perspective, at least the board's job um, was to just purely look after shareholders rather than ensure that the customers were looked after, right? So, uh, and he had this whole thing about like, which was very bizarre now I have to say, uh, where, he, where he argued that uh, they'd had it, he, he outlined that they had had conversations with ASIC about what exactly their responsibilities were when it came to risk management. So that he said, um, you know, is it the board's job to ensure there is a strong risk management culture or he debated this and said, he questioned this. He said, actually, what we can do is lead or drive risk management, but we can't ensure it. So you're kind of going, but hang on a second, then who is in charge of your risk? Anyway, but he had this interesting argument, which I think was um, that our responsibility is to shareholders, not to customers. So how do you think about that? Because this is a tension, isn't it? Um, and it's one of the things that makes people a bit annoyed uh, about um, uh, about big companies um, because, you know, they're customers, but they feel like as a customer, you are, all you're doing is keeping the, the, the company's owners fat and happy. Oh, that that's absolutely right. Um, you're right. There there is a there is a very serious tension at play. The first thing I would say, though, is that um, in a competitive market, um, in a very competitive market, you will generally find that shareholder interests and customer interests are aligned because, as we've said, as we've discussed before, companies in a competitive market it's impossible to make a profit without satisfying consumers because they can walk away. Now, the problem you have in in financial services is that a lot of customers feel like they can't walk away. And and um, and that that is an issue. We we do have very low switching costs. Um, but but the other problem inherent in, in financial services is is that uh, is that there there is for among some people, there is a problem of, of what they call information asymmetries, where it's very difficult for people to understand what they're buying from the bank, the product, they're, the contract they're entering into, and, and that is a problem. So, so firstly, I would say, because these banks are not operating a competitive market, that, that causes that misalignment between uh, serving consumers and serving shareholders. But the second thing I would say, that even though there is a competition problem there that doesn't let the banks off the hook for for treating their customers badly of course it doesn't i would say you know capitalism has never operated in a moral vacuum um, we have a raft of laws and regulations that dictate how companies are supposed to operate um, we have protections for consumers we have the consumer law um, we have all these rules in place and um, so I, I do find it a bit disingenuous to suggest 
suggests that that uh, companies ha- have to choose one or the other, their shareholders or their customers. Um, but secondly, I, I would also say that um, um, there's also a perception that that directors of companies can't consider anything other than the interest of the shareholder in in undertaking their their duties, and and that's not actually true. The our corporations law actually does um, allow for that discretion for for companies directors to to consider other other factors, so um, non-shareholder interests, non-profit interests. So, so I do find it a bit disingenuous, um, that, that claim, that it's one or the other. Yeah, it's become such an mm. interesting point. Um, uh, Larry Fink, uh, who's mm. the, um, the CEO of BlackRock, mm. the $6 trillion um, uh, US asset manager, um, has raised this with CEOs and saying, look, BlackRock wants to invest in companies only if they can articulate um, what their purpose is. Um, that there's got to be a reason for this company to exist and you need to have a strategy which is around um, basically maintaining your license to operate, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I think the conversation has really, this has really moved the dial in terms of the conversation around things like corporate social responsibility uh, and I think environmental and uh, social uh, governance issues in, in large companies. Um, that conversation to me, and from my observation, has taken huge strides uh, in the past year um, mm. because whole things like, you know, your CSR program where you support an arts festival or whatever, right? People are like jettisoning these things, mm. cu- shutting down their funding because they realize it's window dressing and actually being sustainable is about being aligned with the interests of your customers. So companies like Amazon um, are reshaping the uh, awareness of what customer focus looks like. Mm. And companies are learning at the same time. Now, let's not let's put Amazon to one side. It's not a very good example. Um, but they're learning at the same time that you can you need to devise strategies where you maintain your license to operate, that you are seen to have be a company that has strong values because a you, there's a market out there for products mm. from companies like that. But B, you will attract great people um, and you'll build a good business as a result of that, which in turn should make you more profitable, more connected to your customers uh, and give you a more sustainable future. So I, it's, it's become a really interesting um, uh, sort of area. But how do you think about... Um, this whole thing that like this reputation that companies still like all the anger at companies, right? Mm. Um, you know, we were talking about this before, share of profit share of the economy continues to go up and mm. income share uh, of GDP continues to decline. And that's not just an Australian problem, mm. it's in mm. advanced economies mm. all around the mm. world. Mm. And, and income, income and asset inequality is on the rise in a lot of democracies around the world as well and market economies, so there's things like that as well. Mm. Yeah, so like, I, how to, how to address this because you know you point out that capitalism has a bit of an identity crisis mm. but it's also got some like a bit of a political crisis as well too right this increasingly this we see at the ballot box votes for people who are interventionist mm. you know high regulating mm. uh, policies mm. Mm. Um, so uh, like how, do, how does capitalism like get on the front foot and, and defend itself in, mm. in this environment mm. where 
you're seeing this declining share of income. Sorry, I've been talking for a long time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's been fascinating. Um, well, as you said, um, corporate social responsibility is the buzz term of the year. And and, and I, I think there is broad, broad agreement now that that companies on the whole do need a social license to operate. Um, that really seems to be the accepted belief here in Australia. Um, and But but I, I would take issue with it because I, th- I think um, I agree there have been a lot of cases of very big companies window dressing in this area um, and they're very concerned about their reputation. But, but a lot of companies have always had a strong um, social identity. I mean, you know, for want of a better word, ethical capitalism. Um, normal companies do that all the time. They, they care about you – know, a lot of businesses genuinely care about their employees. Um, they, they give – they donate generous, generously for, for, to charities. Um, I think the risk of, of CSR, corporate social responsibility, going too far is that is, – is, is the risk that some companies might end up being politicised and thinking that it's their duty to get involved in, pol- in political debates. And and that's where we really need to get the balance right between companies having you know, values and, and social responsibilities, but also not going too far and not being seen to try to influence the political process. And when you say people don't People have a lot of distrust in big corporations now. I think, again, a lot of that goes back to to concerns about corporatism and crony capitalism. Um, companies this industry looking, capture of politicians right. who, who, yes. who seem to be in the pocket of whatever that's right. industry or company that it is. That's exactly I think particularly right. in Australia we have a, this problem with, um, with coal industry. Mm, energy, is- the energy industry is a classic example of across the board, they're all lobbying for special treatment, for subsidies. Um, and and it's a real problem. I think people can see rent seeking happening um, and and they're not happy with it. So so again, it, it does come back to the to government, good government, um, ensuring they, they don't favour particular companies. There are low barriers to entry so that there is competition in the market. Um, but, but yeah, and um, you you did mention inequality recent um, just now, and and again, that's that's an area where there's a huge disconnect between perception and reality because income inequality in Australia hasn't actually, um, but uh, hasn't actually increased uh, significantly yeah, on the Gini coefficient. Gini coefficient, yeah, yeah. that that's correct. But but also if you just look at um, the different household income in quintiles across. Across the distribution of household income, um, all households have in, have experienced income growth in the last thirty years, and and including the poorest. But but there's that perception that income inequality is getting worse. Some of it is because at the very top end, you're having we're getting an increasing number of, of billionaires who are very famous. They're very they have a high profile and, and they've and all that's, got Instagram accounts. That's correct. So yeah. <laughs> so that's what people tend to think of. And and I think it does influence perception. And also in our lifetimes we have seen the most extraordinary income uh, sorry, increase in asset prices. Mm. Um, oh yes. Yeah, that as, asset inequality I think is probably a more pressing issue rather than income in Australia. But um, yeah, just the, particularly the, the low just rate environment we're seeing uh, people who owned assets before have, uh, have obviously greatly benefited during that period. Well, Those who haven't, sort of like if you bought if you bought the S and P five hundred, if you invested in that, 
um, back in 2008, 2009, you were up a couple of hundred percent. You know, mm. um, you've done all right. And not, uh, not and to I, mention, if you owned a house in Sydney. That's um, right. You know, so. <laughs> the lucky ones, like, r- like people in my own family, my own parents. Um, yeah, it's just luck, you know, buying at the right time and, and you know, living in your house for 40 years and um, seen huge growth. Yeah, absolutely. And so it's, it's like, it's really interesting. You've got this, you know, you've got, you have, absolutely there is this, you know, this perception mm. um, of there, there is real measurable asset mm. uh, inequality, um, but maybe not so much on the income side, but there's this perception and this feeling that um, the rich continue to get richer. It's mm. the same old story, mm. right? As mm. you know, it's for millennia, right? The rich get richer and, you know, everybody else has to slug away. But actually, um, when you look at li- things like, again, to, to your original point, things like living standards, educational attainments, um, all of those other measures, life is getting better all the time. Uh, that's right. I mean, I mean, there's the, there's the old myth about uh, the, the old perception about the economic pie being a finite size, and and that's been completely proven wrong. So so the idea that if someone has a bigger slice of the pie, that means you have less of a slice, and and um, it, it is. It so is the George Bush who said we make we, we want to make the pie higher. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Puff crust. That's right, gourmet. Now <laughs> that that's absolutely right and um but 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 again that that's a that's a very entrenched belief i think um, among a lot of people that if the poor, the rich get richer it means the poor are getting poorer when that's actually not the case everyone's getting better off um uh, across the income scale so look um, it's this has been a fascinating chat i could literally talk to you about this um for hours on end uh, but we do have to wrap it up at some point. So uh, Eugenie Joseph from the Centre for Independent Studies, um, thanks so much for coming on the show and, and sharing this with us today. Thank you. Um, I've, I've got a, uh, I was saying to Eugenie earlier, I've got a soft spot for the Centre for Independent Studies because um, last year they brought out PJ O'Rourke, the, uh, the American satirist and writer, and lined up a, an interview with him uh, for me, which was... Uh, uh, certainly a, a big career highlight, but uh, O'Rourke, um, if, if anybody is unfortunate enough not to have come across him, uh, go and grab one of his books. I think one of my favorites is um, has the brilliant title, Don't Vote, It Just Encourages the Bastards. Um, <laughs> so, um, uh, so you've been listening to the Devils in Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. Our guest has been Eugenie Joseph, uh, who's a policy researcher at the Centre for Independent Studies uh, and author of a new report from the CIS, um, Why We Should Defend Capitalism. Well done on the paper, Eugenie. is a good read. Um, you can find us on the web at businessinsider.com.au. Uh, we're on Twitter uh, at B-I-A-U-S. Uh, David is on Twitter at, at Scutty. Thanks, David, for being on the show. Been a fantastic chat. I'm uh, looking forward to uh, to next week as well. We get a whole bunch of economic data being the start of the month, including our GDP, retail sales. So we'll have uh, no trade. So we're going to have a lot to go and discuss about. And of course, house prices. House prices. That's right. And our guest next week, uh, a really interesting uh, analyst uh, and provocative, thoughtful analyst from the CBA, Gareth Aird, senior economist uh, at at the country's biggest bank. So we're looking forward to having him on. The show is produced by Rick Salter. You can find us under Devils details on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll catch you next time.